since everybody's getting a little bit quieter, I guess we can go ahead and start. And then maybe if I uh, stay right on my notes, we'll get early dismissal, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for everyone here this morning as we uh, open your word. Uh, we again recognize the need for your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to listen and to hear and to understand. Uh, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to speak the words of truth uh, accurately and um, with uh, an end towards your glory and our sanctification. We pray for that this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Carl and I are doing a short series on benedictions. If you don't recall from last week, a benediction, one author puts it this way, it's a declaration of blessings from God upon his loved ones. Though brief, they offer words of assurance or precepts designed to bring joy, peace, comfort, and security to those who place their trust in God. You heard Carl say this morning that they can be in different places in a book. Uh, even that particular <clears throat> definition, though, even would give rise to questions on certain passages as to whether they're benedictions or not. In two weeks, Lord willing, I'll be uh, dealing with some of the benedictions in Romans. One of them, the very last one, uh, it's listed in your uh, book, in your Bible, in the New King James, as a benediction, even though some would say, actually, it's not a benediction, it's a doxology. And so sometimes doxologies are um, incorporated into or considered benedictions. They are a good word. It's more of a good word about God than God's word to us. Uh, but we'll talk about that more when that time comes. Last week, Carl went through number six, one of the classic passages of benedictions, the classic benedictions. This week, uh, as we, uh, we're going to look at Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. I'm going to have a lot of time to set it up uh, before we look at it specifically, but you could be turning there. I want to talk about the book of Hebrews, but let me set this up by relating just a short passage out of Pilgrim's Progress. I'm reading this uh, this year, well, I say this year, hopefully it takes less time than that. Uh, but that's something that I'm reading through right now. It is just such a great book. I think it's Craig in here. I don't know, it's, Craig reads through that like once a year. He's probably done it 40, 50 times. Um, Spurgeon, I know as well. But there's one, uh, one place in the book, if you remember, they went to the slow or the slew of despond. People pronounce it differently. And uh, Goodwill is talking to Christian. And Christian says, it was describing to Goodwill what had happened with him and another gentleman, it was actually two other gentlemen, obstinate and pliable, as they went, came to the slough of despond. And he says, truthfully, we pressed on together until we came to the slough of despond, and to which we both suddenly fell. My neighbor, pliable, became so discouraged by that experience that he refused to go any further. After struggling for a time in a miry bog, he finally reached the side nearest to his house and climbed out. Uh, he told me that I should possess the brave country alone, uh, on, his uh, on his behalf, and he went in the direction of obstinate while I proceeded to this gate. Goodwill shook his head with regret, and he said, How sad for poor Pliable. You mean to say that he has such a little appreciation for the celestial glory to come that he didn't consider it worth running a few risks and difficulties necessary to obtain it? Isn't that interesting way to put that? Um, such little appreciation for the celestial glory that, uh, to come that he didn't consider worthy, uh, worth running the few risks and necessary difficulties to obtain it. 
Well, that is the picture of the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk about Hebrews for a little bit because the benediction, this benediction is fairly specific. And I don't think you appreciate what the benediction has unless you know the story of the book of Hebrews. And it's a pretty interesting one. It's one in which I could even introduce it this way to ask the question, have you ever regretted? Uh, Because I know everybody's regretted some decision they made. You make some, I've made... Uh, a couple of big ones that I've thought that it was not my marriage in case you're wondering that was a good one a couple of financial decisions I made that came back and and bit me and I thought if I could do it over again if I could go back somehow Uh, well that's kind of what's happening in the book of Hebrews you have the people are become Christians they're Hebrews and we'll talk about that more in just a minute Um, they're Hebrews and they have become Christians and now they're starting to face persecution and they, uh, in that, the, feeling the weight of that pressure, they begin to capitulate and they start thinking, I need to find a safe place, uh, free from conflict, persecution, from shame. I, this was perhaps a bad decision to go here. So I need to, maybe I need to go back to that safe place. In this case, it's going to be a, going back to old Judaism because in the culture, and we'll be, Lord willing, talking about this at the men's uh, the Men at the Gates on Tuesdays, we're going to take a couple months and do the ancient church. We're just going to talk about those first 500 years of the church. Uh, but one of the things that we'll learn about there is how the Jews were able to carve out a special place in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman, um, of course, they were polytheists, and typically they would not allow for the Jews who were monotheists to, to incorporate. But the Jews had so much power and numbers that they actually allowed them to, to function as Jews as long as they paid their taxes and those kinds of things, uh, they were okay with that. So Judaism was still accepted within the Roman kingdom. And you could, uh, as a Christian uh, who is experiencing persecution, you could slide back into the, the Judaism and be free from that. You could find that kind of safe place. Uh, now, as you think about this benediction this morning, let me ask and start out almost with an application or a question. Uh, why do you want to know this benediction? What, what good is this going to do you? Perhaps that will help you to focus a little bit as we go through it. There's a little bit of a dialectical message here. If you look at the, those verses there, and I'll just read them really quickly to you. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. <clears throat> There's a bit of a dialectical message here because, uh, and we'll see this as we go through the book of Hebrews, because not only is he giving a, a positive word here, there is implicit within it and ex- explicit in the text, the earlier text, a warning that if you don't do it, there are consequences. So he's encouraging them on with these words. These are good words to encourage them, but again, implicit in that is, if you don't do it, there are consequences that you don't want to embrace. And so we'll see that as we go through it. Benefits to come in the new covenant. Uh, it gives us an appreciation for the celebration of benefits to come, of the celebration of the life to come, as we saw from the um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And it's what it is, it's really a kind of that, these two verses are a little bit of a, somewhat of a distillation of all that has happened in the book of Hebrews. It's sort of going through the whole book and saying, let me distill this down for you into about, depending on how you number it, six or seven different phrases that are important, but best understood in the context of Judaism for these particular people. Now, for you, 
You might think, uh, well, that, that was Jews, Christians who were converted. They're going back to Judaism. What does this have to do with me? What well, has everything to do with you? Uh, I, don't, I'm, I don't like the name names, so I'm not going to, but uh, even in the last two weeks, uh, I have seen in the news at least one well-known Christian person uh, who has capitulated, you know, where they say uh, up to the last, uh, you know, actually the last few months, you would have thought, well, this person believes in Christian marriage and blah, 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 blah. Here they are getting involved in a you know, homosexual marriage in their, in their home. And I was like, what happened to you? And so you see that, now, if you haven't seen this with other Christians, it's happening in big numbers. People turning away, they're embracing some weird versions of Christianity. They're, ver- they're embracing versions that are socially acceptable. You can embrace this version of Christianity because nobody's going to give you a hard time about it because it's your own personal religion. It's not one that you're going to try to foist upon anybody else. So there are ways you can go as, you're, as Christians, as we in our culture experience, if, if you don't feel like the, 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 the water is rising around you and you're on an island, uh, you should, because uh, the water's rising, and we're kind of bunching up like this, and others are jumping off and just saying, I'm not going to do this. Uh, so this is a good book. Even though it was Jews, Christian Jews who are going back to Judaism, we as Christians face that pressure, the peer pressure, the social pressure, the governmental pressure of saying, you have got to stop what you're doing there. You have to stop believing that. You have to use our pronouns. You have to use our way of thinking. You have to use our vocabulary. The pressure is, is coming on more and more. And so uh, this is a good book, and therefore this will be a good benediction for us to reflect on uh, in, because of these times. It also is a good benediction. I, I call it the stay the course benediction uh, because that's essentially what he's saying is you want to stay the course. Do not capitulate. Do not compromise. Don't give in. There's all these benefits to come from following it, and there's the, the consequences of not which we'll look at. Uh, So again, as we look at this benediction, as I say, it was not given in a vacuum. It's given at the end of the book, and it's given after uh, the author has spent, uh, you know, uh, let's say 10 chapters we'll see specifically, uh, talking about the issues uh, that will lead to the benediction. So let's talk about the book of Hebrews for a moment. The author is unknown. Even the recipients are unknown, but they are Hebrews. In fact, the author of this book assumes that the readers know about Abraham, the covenant people of God, Moses and Sinai, the Torah and God's covenant, uh, God's covenant with the people of God, the priests, the sacrifices, the wilderness wanderings. He assumes that they know about it because he talks about it. He doesn't say, well, let me remind you of what that is or let me tell you what it is. He says, y'all know what it is. You grew up with this. And so uh, that's, that's the context there. Uh, as I said, Hebrews was written to Jewish believers. They're getting ready to walk from Christ, and now the author is going to take them through a 10-chapter journey. And I know it's 13 chapters, but specifically we're looking at 10 chapters of, of theological truths. <clears throat> you think of it as like he's walking through a redwood forest of theological truths. Boom, this is true. Boom, you know, big redwood tree. Truth, 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 like this. And he's walking them through it and pointing out as he goes through here Uh, so that they understand what it is that they've embraced as Christians and what they're thinking about walking away from. And he says, why would you do that? By the way, it was interesting that uh, Carl mentioned from Peter this morning where he says, remember he talked about the Gentiles and what they had come from? So even though we may not as Gentiles want to go back to the Jewish system, 
we may want to be, uh, we're tempted to go back to various forms of paganism or progressivism or secularism. There's a lot of different isms out there. So again, uh, hence the uh, application for us today. The thing of these Hebrews is that they could return then to Judaism and find solace there from the pressures and the persecutions from the secular culture as well as from the non-converted Jews themselves. If they just say, well, I don't believe in the Jesus Messiah thing anymore, the Jews would welcome them back and say, oh, good, you're conforming to our, our picture, you're welcome here, and then you could feel safe from uh, these kinds of pressures. Now, he's going to do this with four illustrations out of the book of Hebrews. He's going to talk about angels and the Torah in, ver- in chapters 1 and 2. These are a little bit loosely divided, but it fits. Uh, secondly, he's going to talk about Moses in the promised land. Uh, third, he's going to talk, that's in chapters 3 and 4. He's going to talk about the Old Testament priesthood and Melchizedek in chapters 5 through 7. And then he's going to talk about the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant in chapters 8 through 10. And what he's going to show in each one of these is each one of these events in the Israelite history were major events. They're events that they look back to and go, ah, I remember, you know, when, when uh, the Torah was given in Mount Sinai. Oh, what a glorious thing that was. Oh, and Moses, when he led us out of the, you know, the, the um, Egypt and in through the, the Red Sea. Oh, what an event that was. And what he's going to go through in each one of these four things that I mentioned, he's going to say, Christ is far superior to anything that's happened yet. And you need to understand that. You understand how Christ is so vastly superior than anything that's happened before in the history of the Jews uh, so that you'll embrace that and not want to go back to it. Why would you go back to it? There's there's nothing there for you. These four units also have with them a warning, and they're kind of scary. If you take your time to read them, and you might be thinking, oh, no, I need to be a good Christian, whatever. Hopefully I won't fall away, whatever. And and he gives the warnings. It's like, oh, okay, he's... He's really serious. This is a scary thing. You do not want to go back. We'll see. I'll give you an example of one or two of them in here. Okay, the first one is the giving of the law, the Torah, in chapters 1 and 2. When the, uh, you think, remember the time when the law was given on Mount Sinai. It was fantastic. It was magnificent. Thunder and lightning. It's a glorious manifestation of the power and glory of God. How did the people respond? Scared to death, shaking in their shoes, you know, knees knocking like, whoa, you know, don't let anything touch this or it will die. I mean, it's this magnificent picture of God's coming to them and giving them the law. Deuteronomy 33.2 was believed by many of the Jews to to picture that it was actually uh, angels that were providing this information, that God used angels to bring the law to them. And so many of them associated this giving of the law with angels, but his is infinitely superior to the angels. He says, as great as that seemed like, as great as it seemed that it was that these angels came and delivered the law, the coming of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in the flesh, is far superior. Of course, it because the angels are created beings. He says, but Jesus' coming is, is so far superior to that. He says, you may want to go back to the unbelieving Jewish community and their Mount Sinai and the giving of the law by angels, but Jesus, as the divine messenger of God, far surpasses the angels in glory and power and authority. Now, again, I said with each one of these, there's a warning. And this one, if the Jews are called, I'm sorry, this one is in Hebrews 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, where he says, if the word spoken through the angels 
proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So in other words, the message that came through these inferior beings and angels happened with them how much more? Christ. Because he goes on, he says, um, if, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So he says, you know, you think that was impressive and there were consequences you don't even know. Uh, when he says here, uh, how shall we escape? Again, so often we think of the New Testament, Old Testament's law and wrath, New Testament's love and grace. And yet you see plenty of uh, God's wrath in the New Testament. I remember I had that discussion with some lady who came here and said, I don't like that you have, you talking about God's wrath. Because, you know, that's, that's Old Testament. I said, well, turn with me to John 3, where he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him, uh, on him. I said, the wrath is in the New Testament. And even here, he says, you walk away from this, and this is, you know, the judgment that you saw in the Old Testament, you know, the temporal judgments of the promised land. He says, that's nothing. You're talking about eternal judgment. So again, I said, these are, there's a bit of uh, sobriety that's brought with these warnings. The second thing that he gives is Moses in the promised land, chapters 3 and 4. If you recall that God called Moses to lead the people out of slavery, and he was also responsible to build the tabernacle. Uh, what was understood, the tabernacle, as we've heard here before, the tabernacle is understood to be a kind of microcosm or model for the entire universe, a place, a localized version of the universe where God would come and meet with his people. But the author points out that Moses was a leader of God's people at one time, uh, even though Moses was a leader of God's people at one time. Jesus is far superior. He's not just leading God's people out of Egypt. He's leading all of God's people, the Jews and the Gentiles, into this new exodus. Additionally, though Moses constructed the temple, Jesus was, in fact, the very creator of the universe. So he says, yeah, Moses built this building, but Christ, being superior to the uh, Moses, he said he built the universe. Uh, so again, uh, there's a warning with this one. He says, remember that the Jews rebelled against Moses in the Old Testament and lost their chance to go to the promised land. In the same way, if you turn back from Christ now, back to Judaism, you're not going to enter the promised land and hence ultimately the eternal rest. You turn back, this is, what, this is the fate. So you're, yeah, you avoid the, the pressure of the culture. You avoid the pressure of your peers, but at what cost? You gain the whole world and lose your soul? So this is the, the paradigm he's laying out for them. The Old Testament, third, the Old Testament priesthood in Melchizedek. If you recall, the Jews had a priesthood in the Old Testament who were responsible for maintaining the sacrificial system and worship of God's people. They represented the people before God to atone for their sins. But what was the problem with the priests? We're told they needed, this, they needed the sacrifices as much as the people did. It suggests that the priests were inadequate to fully represent the people before God. It suggests that the better priest was necessary to act as the final and perfect mediator between God and man. He says, given that, who is it? He says, we're going back to Jesus. Uh, he, he was better than the angels who came and gave the message. He's better than Moses. He says, and he's better than the priesthood that was... Uh, called to act as a media, in a mediatorial role. Of course, the author, uh, this is the author's point. Jesus is the very high priest who can function as a mediator, but also as a means of mediation by providing 
himself as the sacrifice. The, the priests had to use animals and put them on the altar. They weren't going to be ultimately perfect. The priests weren't perfect. He says this is a, it was a temporary system put in place to hold on, to, to hold the place until we got to this, the time of Christ. And he says, and he's here and you've embraced him. Why would you go back? To these, the, uh, you go back to the Jews now, and they have the priests. They're just, they're just still men. If they are doing sacrum, the mediator, and you're walking away from the perfect sacrifice, why would you go there? And he says, if you return, uh, let me go back and say, uh, he does refer to this uh, priesthood of Melchizedek. That's a study in and of itself. It's spoken of in Genesis 14, Psalm 110. In uh, Palmer Robertson's book, The Israel of God, he's got a whole chapter on that. That's a pretty fascinating study if you ever want to get into that. I've been reading that lately and pondering that. Uh, but uh, Melchizedek was a picture of a, of a priesthood. You think of the Aaronic priesthood, a priesthood that God, not ironic, Aaronic, starts with the A, a priesthood that God instituted. And yet we see introduced in the Genesis 14, Psalm 110, this reference to a, a higher priest, Melchizedek. And he says, you need a higher priest than these because these can't do it. And this is him. It's Christ. He says, if you return to Old Testament Judaism, you're returning to an inferior priesthood that cannot fully mediate between you and God. You remain unreconciled with God. Uh, the fourth one is the sacrifices in the New Covenant. And I think that was, it was chapters 8 through 10. Again, I don't need to go into details here, but you recognize the sacrifices. What was the, the issue with the sacrifices? They had to be done over and over and over and over. Every day, every year, same thing over and over. Uh, and you had the old covenant, which is uh, described as being insufficient. And so, again, he's warning them, saying to reject Christ, the old covenant that was in sacrifice on your part, and to regress back to the old covenant that was insufficient to fully, finally deal with the sins of men and schedule peace with, and, and to uh, have peace with God. So, <clears throat> again, for all four of these, he's saying that to step away from your Christian testimony and walk and at least previous commitment is not just to walk away from, yes, you will avoid some of the pressures from the culture. Yes, you will get that, but at the peril of your own soul. So again, as I say, this is a, it's a pretty strong warning to them. Now with that in mind, let's look at the benediction and think through uh, these words in light of what we've, we've studied here and in light of what we know about the audience. Now notice how he starts out and he says, may the God of peace, and I'll stop right there, may the God of peace uh, who brought up, but I'm going to start with the God of peace. What does he mean here? Why is that important to the readers? I think one reason it's important is what were they look, What were the, the people who are contemplating walking away? What did they want? Peace. I mean, certainly they, they don't want to deal with this culture. I mean, if you guys haven't felt it yet, you will in your workplace. You know, when they come up, and a friend of mine told me about how they come up and they put a little uh, rainbow flag in his coffee cup on his desk. And he's supposed to, you know, not supposed to say anything. Uh, of course, he didn't leave it there. But you feel like every around you's got their coffee cup with a flag in it, but you. And you feel singled out. And you think, well, I'm going to be real tough. Well, just remember that. It's not as easy as you think. That kind of pressure it can be very powerful. So these people wanted peace, but they wanted peace with the world. And what do they really need? What we all need is we need peace with God. We've talked about God's wrath, and it says you need peace with God. That's the most important thing. 
And he is the God of peace. You know, you say, yes, he's wrathful, but he's the God of peace. He's the one that provided the way for you to have peace with him. Why would you walk away from him? Paul uses that. Paul uses the title. I'm not saying that Hebrews was written by Paul, but Paul uses the title God of peace a number of times uh, in his writings. For example, <clears throat> at least six times in his epistles. Uh, you've probably read, I know you have, Philippians 4, 6, and as it goes on through 9. Remember it says that, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding. Uh, it, it took me a long time before I realized I'd read that passage so many times. But if you keep reading on there, when he talks about what you should think about, whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and good. He says, think on these things. If there's any virtue, anything worth praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first one says you pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God. And then a very So true peace is not saying everything. That I'm saying the right pronouns. I'm, I'm, I'm as woke as anybody could be. Yeah, you might be able to do that, but you're not going to be at peace with God when you do that. Uh, now, what we find as well, and this is kind of interesting to me, <clears throat> and I'll talk about this, Lord willing, when I go through the fruit of the Spirit, we get to the word uh, peace. Uh, but I'll say it here. You'll hear it twice at some point. But it's really interesting. What is it that brings about peace? And what you see is if you do a study in the Scripture, if, you do, if you're good at the computer and doing those kinds of word studies, do a search of peace and righteousness. And you'd be surprised how many times those two words come together in a verse. Now, why would that be? It's, it's not hard to think about it. If the people are completely righteous, there's no conflict. There's peace. Uh, so you have passages like Psalm 8510. I love this one. Where he says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Oh, that's why. Because if you live righteously, you're going to have peace. And so we're going to see that there's a certain um, sanctification process God is taking them through. So he's a God of peace, yes, but he's the one that's going to bring peace, of course, ultimately through Christ and our relationship with him. But not only peace with us and God, but now with men as well as we live out righteously, uh, particularly and specifically in the church. Uh, what's going to bring that about righteousness? And it's interesting in Hebrews 12, Hebrews, same, same book, he says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, now his chastening, what could that refer to? Probably the persecution, the stuff, they're, the, the chastening they're going through, the hard times they're going through. He says, it's, it's painful. I know that. I get it. I'm not minimizing that you're going through struggling. But he says, nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the what? Everybody know? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. There you see them together again. As we live and God works righteousness in us, we can live at peace with others. Um, again, that's with other believers more particularly, but even so. So the God of peace who brought up Jesus for the dead, brought up Jesus from the dead. Now, why would that be important? Well, what is, there are several reasons why that can be important. First of all, uh, for them, what do they want? They want peace, yes, but they also want some kind of power over their circumstances. What can I do? Well, I know I can just give in. On the other hand, he's saying here, but you realize that God's the one that brought Jesus up from the dead. You want to talk about power? Talk about that power, the one that brings people up from the dead. Not power of just capitulating and, and caving in, but the power over, uh, over death itself. What about being saved from the wrath and judgment of God by the one who has the power over death? A true power then resides in the one who can raise people from the dead. God himself 
the God of peace, who brought up Jesus from the dead. We see a reference to that uh, in Hebrews 5, 7. Uh, Speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able, speaking of the Father, Father who was able to save him, Jesus, from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, able to save him from death. What are you facing in your persecution? Possible death. Who can save you from that? Not necessarily that you won't die, but after you die, what about eternal death? Who can save you from that? Only one. And he says, that's the one you're going to walk from? No, I mean, you wanted, you, just like, again, Pilgrim's Progress, deal with the hardships now because the payout is infinite. It's eternal. The payout is, is perfect. Hebrews 7.15, again, speaks of that same idea. There arises another priest who was to come, speaking now of Jesus, not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Again, think about the Jews who are thinking about going away, capitulating, giving in. And he says, you want an eternal life. You want one that can raise you from the dead and, and reconcile you with God. The next, one, the next phrase, he says, the great shepherd of the sheep. The Hebrews wanted to go back to old Judaism, as I said. The author writes, is writing to them, he says, why would you go back there? What do we know about the shepherds of the Old Testament Jews and the priests? Have you ever read Ezekiel 34? He talks about these. They were horrendous. The priesthood was, was horrible. And he says, why would you go back to that? I'm not talking about just the fact that they're human. They were, they were evil, uh, at least in the time of the right. Why not go? He says, why would you want to go back to these human shepherds who are sinful men? Why not go back to the great shepherd of the sheep? Again, spoken of in Ezekiel 34 and a number of other passages, Isaiah 40, 1 Peter 2, Ezekiel 34, I mentioned, Psalm 23, uh, Lord's my shepherd. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Why would you walk away from him? Would the other shepherds have done that, the Jews? Uh, doubtful, doubtful. <clears throat> the shepherd analogy is said used many times in Scripture. 1 Peter, Peter uses it. Uh, we'll get to that, Lord willing, with uh, Carl's preaching. You were like sheep going astray, <clears throat> but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, this is an emphasis on, then on God's loving, God's caregiving. He's not cold and distant. He is the one that is the shepherd who protects and provides for a sheep. He even lays down his life for them. He incarnated. He, Jesus took on a body and he laid down his life. And he says, that's the one you want to hold to, the one you want to cling to. Now, the next part, he says, is through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So how is Jesus going to make this happen? Well, through the new covenant, Uh, not the old covenant with all its insufficiencies. He says, you need a new and an everlasting covenant. This is the covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places. Uh, We can read about it as well in Hebrews, same book, uh, where the writer says this, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, and this is a a phrase you'll see throughout scripture, how much more, referencing Christ, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, think of what, you know, these old sacrifices, they might clean your conscience for a day or a week. If you think of like Luther, it worked for maybe a few minutes. And then he was back in the confessional again. He says, how much more the perfect sacrifice, those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, all that's good, but now how, uh, 
How is it possible in the light of all the suffering and pressure from the world? How are we going to do this? You know, I need help. And mere conformity to the crowd is going to leave you just feeling shallow and guilty and weak. Uh, so this is where the benediction comes in. We're going to see, again, we've, what we've already seen so far. Uh, but as we go through the benediction, we're going to see that God now is going to begin this work in you. Not only has he done a work on your behalf, he's continuing a work in you as you go through these times. And he's going to, next line, make you complete in every good work. So rather than uh, submit yourself to the conformity of the crowd, how much better to be transformed by God as he prepares you, and this is what sanctification does, and even persecution, that's your, part of your preparation to go to the celestial city, to be eternally with God, inf- you know, infinite God for eternity, and he's preparing you. And that's the persecution. If you say, oh, it's, it's hard. Yeah, but if you, if you understand it through the lens of Scripture, this is part of God's discipline process to conform you to the image of Christ, to transform you uh, as you prepare to meet with him. That word complete there means prepared or framed in other passages. That, that it means to, be a, to, to God's adjusting you, putting you in good working order. It has the idea of adjusting, shaping, mending, restoring, preparing, Uh, All of these ideas saying God is preparing you. So this is part of the process that he does. And again, persecution is part of the means to this end, this wondrous, glorious end. So don't, so you don't get hurt. You you stay faithful through it, uh, even as we uh, saw earlier. Now going on, a good example of this, Hebrews 12. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Uh, you know, I'm going to skip over that because I'm going to run out of time here. Uh, Hebrews 12, again, talks about this very idea of God's uh, disciplining of us and, and producing Christ-likeness in us. Um, for if indeed, if, uh, for a few days, uh, talking about the parents, the parents chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness, again, preparing us for heaven. The author prays that God will fulfill what he has pledged in the new covenant to enable them to obey his will. And that's the next part there, to do his will. He's transforming us to do his will. Philippians 2.11, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, with, uh, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see kind of a similar theme. He says, work this thing out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You don't want to go there. Work it out. And he goes on, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So our obedience, but it's also it's the, where we see the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. He says, you be responsible and you work out your salvation, but God's at work in you. I think another good is what we're talking about. Don't be conformed to the world. That's what they're wanting to do, isn't it? I want to conform to the world so I can just kind of chill out my life and get from one end to the other. He says, don't do that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God so that you can do his will, like it says in the benediction there. What about what's next? Working for you what is pleasing in his sight. Again, this is similar wording to what we find in Philippians 2, 13, to will and to do for his good pleasure. What is God's good pleasure? Well, what's the chief end of man? To glorify him and to enjoy him. As you grow in righteousness, will you be able to enjoy God more? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a given, right? That just makes sense definitionally. If you become more like Christ, you enjoy God all the more. 
which is all the more incentive now to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So as we discipline, as we spend that time in the Word using the means of grace, coming to church in morning and evening, uh, daily time in the Word, prayer, uh, the, the sacraments, as we do those things, we conform more to the image of God, and as we do, we find we enjoy Him more and more. Your times in prayer become more rich. Your times in the Scripture become more rich. You start making connections with things. You ever had that happen? You start reading, you go, wait, I, could just, I read that one place before, and then you find, oh, oh, that's what it is. I remember one of the things that Carl told me recently, which I've appreciated, is we talk about how you can prepare a sermon by just opening up a bunch of commentaries and Bible study books or study Bibles and just you know, gather the data, sort it, and preach it. He says, but then you lose out on the joy of original discovery. I thought, that's a great way to put it. Because if you're going to let somebody else find all your jewels, well, that's just not, it's not as much fun. I mean, when you get in there and study yourself and go, oh, you know, you look up a word, you look up a phrase, you look up a passage, a concept, whatever it is, you go, oh, wow, I've seen that before. Or that, that makes sense. Now I get that. That joy of original discovery becomes richer and richer as you discover more and more. What does it take? Well, when you're younger, for you younger folks, it takes some dis- discipline. I'm sorry, because you're not necessarily just going to say, oh, good, my two-inch thick book i got to read that people have been debating about for 2,000 years. You know, I'm going to get in there, and it's kind of intimidating. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to make sense of it. That's why we're doing how to study your Bible with the junior high boys. You need to know how to study your Bible. Uh, everyone should know how to study your Bible. Uh, and as you do, and you get that, the joy of the original discovery and the richer experiences of it, you grow in your faith, you find more joy in it. The more time you'll wake up in the morning, and I imagine you could ask any number of our senior saints, do, what do you like to do in the morning? Well, if it's me, it's a cup of coffee, my nat- what's Nature's Way nut bar, and my Bible. And it's like, like this, and I'm feeding here spiritually, and I'm feeding, you know, enjoying that nice cup of coffee. And, boy, that's the highlight of my day. I love it. Uh, and you'll find the same thing. But it, at first, it's a little bit hard. You just got to push through it. You got to work at it. The uh, Lord will bless you for that. He goes on, he says, through Jesus Christ, the one who's superior in all things, we've already talked about uh, in those other four things we mentioned through the book of Hebrews, Christ is the one that's superior. And it's, all of this is through him. That's why you don't want to walk away from him. Um, better than the old priesthood, better than the old covenant sacrifices and no wonder he ends up and he says to whom be glory forever and that's not enough it's forever and ever you probably add another one to that and ever Uh, this is what he says this is what you want to embrace as a christian this is what this makes any persecution just seem like nothing how could paul write you've seen how much suffering that guy went through none of us have experienced anything like what paul suffered and he, how did he describe them? <sighs> Light and momentary afflictions. You go, are you kidding me? I mean, I got, I got sick last week, and I was pretty bummed. And I'm like, lashes, shipwrecked, and he was light and momentary. How, how do you get there? Time in the word. Don't, don't quit. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Stay in it. And you'll find you'll get to this place. You'll move further along in your sanctification as God prepares you for eternity with him. Well, that's why that benediction then is glorious. Let me close with saying it once more. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's close. Father, once again, how thankful we are for the scriptures that remind us of how we need to stay centered on the gospel, to be in your word, to be studying, to be thinking, reflecting, thanking. All of these things, Father, part of our growth and transformation as we look forward to an eternity with you. Uh, Lord, protect us. I think especially young people, but all of us from the distractions of this world, whether it's the the persecutions that are, appear to be perhaps imminent in the next number of years, uh, or the seductions that have so readily and so brought so many to shipwreck of their faith, giving in to the, this, the lures of the world, the alluring uh, temptations of the world. Protect us, we pray, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.